Hello, listeners. My name is Tashara, and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by David Durlocker. David is the CEO of Julius Baer International and is responsible for the firm's business in the UK and Guernsey. David studied at the University of Edinburgh and joined Julius Baer from Merrill Lynch, where he spent 14 years. He also sits on the Chairman's Advisory Board of the British Museum. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Of course, of course. Could you tell us more about what drew you to a career in wealth management? Quite simply, two things. Uh, A love of markets and a love of people. Uh, And it's the combination of the two that's attracted me to wealth management. So a love of markets, it's that combination uh, between economics and politics and market psychology. Uh, the, the blend of port- portfolio theory and, and how it's adapted. Um, and a love of people, because the theory is all very well, uh, but it's when it's translated into the real lives of individuals and the effect you see of, of um, that translation, it brings it to life. Uh, the theory is only as good as, um, as a textbook. Ultimately, you have to translate it into the lives of individual people. And that's what has... Um, attracted me into uh, this career and it's what makes it um, a fantastic career uh, even now uh, more than uh, two decades later. That's incredible and following on that could you tell us more about your role as CEO of Julius Baer International and what this entails on a day-to-day basis? Uh, yes, as, as they say, no, no two days are ever the same, and it is indeed true in my job. Um, I think a lot of people have different ideas as to what the role of a CEO is and what you are expected to do. Uh, some people even wonder what on earth the role of a CEO is there for at all. Um, but at its heart, it's got three things in its core. Now, one is to set the strategy, to set out the vision where we're trying to go and how we're going to get there. On the uh, second side, it's about setting the culture. And that is the tone from the top. What is the vibe of the business? What are its priorities? What are the things it doesn't do? Setting the culture is, is a key role, and that's where really firms can differ from each other. Uh, and the last is the risk framework. The CEO has a responsibility for the risk framework. They have an accountability to see that a financial services organization pays good attention to the risks it runs and it manages. Uh, So my day-to-day role actually is a combination for three. Um, uh, But I guess the area which is not in any of those priorities and yet is probably one of the things that uh, occupies my mind a lot of the time is how to motivate people, how to encourage people to keep going because work is often hard uh, and it is often demanding. Um, But how do you encourage those people to keep going and to keep remembering who they're working for? The danger for a lot of companies is they forget who their client is. And some industries have been more guilty of doing that than others. My job is to hold the business very close to the client. And uh, that sounds great in theory, but in practice, it is essential. Because if we forget who we're working for, if we forget the heart of the business, then we have forgotten our identity. 
That is very insightful indeed. And the wealth management industry has experienced a lot of interesting new changes in recent years, with perhaps the most salient of this being the intersection of science and human-based advice. Could you please give us some examples of how Julius Baer is responding to the shift? Yes, um, the D word, digitalization, has been much on the lips of our industry for a number of years. And Julius Baer indeed has over many years invested very heavily in its digital architecture. Uh, that's really come into two main uh, areas. Uh, one of which is to see that the client facing side provides greater control to the, for the client. And the client facing side is those, those digital interfaces that allow the client to remain in control of what they see, how they use data, how they understand how their portfolio is doing, how they get access to information and how, they, uh, how they're able to control that information. Um, we have made big investments in, in this area. The second area that we've made big investments in is the basic building blocks that enable the business to run efficiently um, and to run um, with as uh, the, the least amount of interference as possible uh, from multiple systems. And so we invested over many years a very considerable amount into what we call the digital advisory suite, which is a, a technology platform that allows us to provide point of sale advice to a client, um, making sure that we meet uh, regulatory requirements, but also understand the risk implications for that client and their, their portfolio as we provide the investment advice. Now, that is a, a clunky thing to do without significant technology investment. We've gone down those roads rather than see technology and digitalization as a replacement. Uh, we haven't gone down the road of seeing that technology should replace individuals and we don't believe for high net worth the ultra high net worth clients that that is what they're looking for the thing that they ultimately value most are people not technology um, gadgets and so our technology needs to not be about people replacement but about people enablement of course and on the topic of science and technology Big data has revolutionized entire industries and is becoming only more prolific within wealth management. What are some challenges and opportunities that you see? Big data is indeed um, a key for any sector, not just the financial services industry. And the harnessing of data enables any industry or any business to be more intuitive. It enables a business to understand more about its customers and what it's trying uh, to do for them. It's able to uh, predict how those customers can behave. And so we have also invested in, in, that, um, in that field. Um, on one side, making sure that actually we have what we call a data lake, uh, effectively a, um, a, a single point of all data from which we can more intelligently extract information. That enables us to better serve clients. But secondly, trying to use that data to form patterns of behavior so that we understand our clients differently. If you, if you think back to what I said at the very beginning, one of the things that is essential about uh, a career in, in wealth management is actually a love of people. And because each person is different, their behaviors are different. 
if you are a good wealth manager, you'll be able to understand those behaviors and to get inside them the mind of the client, to be able to see the world through their eyes and to, to be able to therefore advise them, manage their, their assets in a way that's appropriate for them. Using data and uh, big data enables us to be able to understand patterns of behavior, how clients react to different um, uh, circumstances. And so we've invested in, in technology and a team of people who understand that behavioral data that helps us to be more intuitive with our clients. Great, some very interesting insights. And another fundamental shift that we're seeing in markets is the increased focus on ESG and thematic investing. What do you believe to be some of the underlying catalysts of this movement? It's a great question. Uh, and especially um, as we see uh, headlines around COP uh, in Glasgow, the um, focus very much on a public policy platform is around sustainability and ESG, in particular around climate at the moment. Um, but that topic has been uh, long debated also in governance as well uh, for some time. Interestingly, some research has been coming out uh, at the beginning of this year, earlier in this year by Berenberg, which shows that of the three letters, S, social, uh, appears to be the most of interest to people at the moment. But what is driving that, I think, is, a, is an interesting question. And I think it's probably uh, twofold. It's coming from two directions. On one side, it's coming from clients, from customers, because clients or customers are, at the end of the day, consumers. And if you think of how consumers are behaving, increasingly it's more selectively. People where they have the luxury of choice are able to use that choice in how they uh, make buying decisions across a range of different things, from, from the food that they buy on a weekly basis through to the holidays or the um, decisions they may make over travel. Um, the consumer is being more selective where they can afford to be. And that consumer decision is coming across in a more um, conscious way of the impact of those decisions. The second area where um, uh, this push is coming from is from shareholders. And if you look across AGMs uh, around the world, across all range of different sectors, the, the shareholder pressure on boards of directors is only increasing. And that shareholder pressure is holding boards more and more to account, and not just for executive pay, but also the entire um, range from from um, purchasing chains to supply chains, through to governance within businesses, through to carbon footprint. And more and more uh, shareholders are driving the priorities of boards of directors as that occurs and the priorities of the boards and chairs um, uh, change, then you start to see corporate behavior changing. And with that pressure also research analysts start to look at the outcome of that shareholder pressure. And before you know it, the research uh, uh, community starts to evaluate companies in a different way. And before you know that, you start to see that share performance starts to change. So I think that the confluence of these two things, one, a consumer pressure and one, a shareholder pressure, results in a broad landscape change 
These things don't require people uh, to hug trees. They don't require people to, to, to give up meat and become vegan, but they do require a fundamental sea change that's occurring in the background of all investors and all consumers. Right, and quite closely tied to this increased ESG focus is direct indexing. For those who are unfamiliar, could you please explain more about what this is? And could you provide us with some insight into how this has impacted client expectations? Yes, uh, for those who don't know what direct indexing is, direct indexing is where a client, instead of investing in an index via an ETF, uh, will actually invest in the underlying. So if you have, for instance, an index that, that tracks the FTSE 100, uh, direct indexing would result in you buying all of the components of the FTSE 100. Why would you do that? Well, uh, there are relatively few reasons. There are two reasons which, uh, which may be considered, one of which is for uh, tax reasons, because clearly the individual capital losses of individual components can then be offset. Um, the other is for sustainability reasons. It enables you to exclude certain things within what would have been the index. So it enables you to say, okay, well, I'm going to exclude tobacco stocks, for instance, from, from, from this index, and therefore direct indexing puts me at control. It is a, um, a topic that is more commonly found in the States than it is found in Europe or in the UK. Um, but it is not a topic that has taken off considerably. And I think the reason why it has not taken off considerably here is because there are very good sustainable ETFs. Um, there are very good ways in which you can achieve that direct um, exclusion uh, effect or even the direct inclusion effect uh, that you get through sustainable selection. And that enables actually a pretty low cost uh, way of accessing uh, a theme. Very interesting. And the traditional 60-40 portfolio split has been in place for many years, but with the impact of the pandemic on markets, many investors are now losing faith in the foreseeable profitability of the split. How can wealth managers better engage with these client concerns and do you, uh, what do you believe to be the future prospects of this traditional method? That is the $64 million question, Trishara. It's, it's, it's a tough uh, question. And actually, if you were to uh, pick up with advocates of modern portfolio theory, um, you would uh, find that these times in particular are very challenging. Um, uh, at the heart of the, of the theory is that the idea of 60-40, where your equity and then your, your um, fixed income and, and, and alternatives provide good counterbalances, an enablement of, of hedging that allows different asset, asset classes to behave in different ways. Um, well, that has been severely tested right now in a sustained low interest rate environment. Uh, you are not finding many people who are, who are hugely enamored by the fixed income market. And so the question really is, what is the fixed income market there for? 
when largely asset classes are correlating um, increasingly, and also you can achieve some pretty um, uh, attractive uh, equity uh, yields um, uh, out, of, out of equity income. I think, um, I think I would answer this by, uh, by, by saying that investing in a wealth management context is a long-term game. This isn't around necessarily saying, what can you achieve in one year or even shorter uh, returns? Clearly, if we were doing that, then you would have a higher equity allocation, um, potentially even 80%, 90% allocation. But these are risky moves. And I think for the investor, the biggest risk here is drawdown. The potential for volatility in the equity markets is kind of, it's kind of punchy. And we've seen that volatility create a little bit of uncertainty for investors. Um, uh, you have to have a strong stomach sometimes in the equity markets. And for people who have invested over the past 10 years or so, they will have known those markets go up and down. And so therefore, you're looking at that longer term spectrum and trying to see, OK, well, we won't always be in low interest rate environments. We will eventually see a normalization of interest rates. We will eventually see the need to have uh, some degree of, 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 of buffering of that equity volatility. And historically, um, uh, you would see there to be value in having fixed income and having value even in guilds. So uh, I, I, I see it's a, it's a great question, and, and I can see why it's a controversial one, especially right now in these times. But I would still hold out uh, strategic asset allocation does long-term uh, result in better portfolio returns and certainly less queasy stomachs for investors. It's very interesting. The industry has also experienced high levels of consolidation in recent months. Is this something that you see continuing into the future? Yes, it's a great question. Uh, there has been very considerable activity. In the first half of this year, uh, 12 M&A deals were completed. If I compare that against the previous three years combined, there were only 14. So there is significant activity in the capital markets as they relate to M&A activity in the UK. Um, and that activity clearly is bringing in foreign entrants. You see a lot of activity coming in uh, from US uh, 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 shareholders. Uh, it is an attractive space. And because of that attractiveness, you see that the multiples are, um, are extraordinarily high. Uh, the UK has an average PE multiple of over 17%, I think 17.4%. Um, is the PE multiple uh, being uh, seen in these deals um, uh, to date. If you compare that against the EU, uh, it's only 12.7%. 12, 12. Uh, so we are significantly more attractive in the multiple that people are willing to pay, the premium people are willing to pay, is much higher. Why is that? It is a profitable industry 
for all of its complexity, for all of the cost uh, that it requires, it is a profitable industry. And probably the area which is of most interest in some of that, in some of that uh, consolidation is the retail space. That's the sub-million pound space, which has seen considerable activity in, 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 the, past, um, in the past year or two. Uh, most notably, you saw uh, JP Morgan buying Nutmeg, and that uh, goes into one main area where I have seen some of that, those competitors uh, trending, and that is towards a fully digital experience. It's the exact opposite to what I was talking about for the high net worth and ultra high net worth space, which really values the person um, in the retail space. The person is less important than the sophistication of the technology and an entirely digitalized offering. Great, thank you, David. And just to sort of uh, shift from the topics that we've been talking about, what would you say are some of the key skills for someone interested in a career in the wealth management industry? Uh, it's, um, it's a good question. Uh, I, I think that the answer comes down to the two very basics, uh, to have a love of the markets um, and what drives the markets, you know, that blend of economics and politics and, and investor psychology, um, with a love of people. You, know, you can be a, um, a, uh, a, a very good theorist, but if you don't like people, then this is a very difficult part of the uh, financial services industry to be uh, in. Um, I say all of that, but recognize that wealth management is a really broad field. So within my own wealth management business at Julius Baer, we have clearly relationship managers and assistant relationship managers. They're the people at the coalface of those client relationships. Uh, they handle those, that translation almost uh, between the two sides. But we also have portfolio managers whose skill is in running money. Uh, we have investment advisors whose skill is in ongoing provision of advice. We have people in, uh, in our operations and technology teams. We have people in cybercrime and uh, protecting uh, the bank from... Uh, a whole area of, of, of attack that can come. So some of the best people in cybersecurity uh, work with us. We have people in HR and finance and legal. So actually, what is a career in, in, in wealth management? It is not necessarily just one narrow area of client advice, but all of them are united by one thing. That is the client that we serve. And, and so you have to end up liking clients, whatever area you're in. Great, that's some great advice. I'm sure that our listeners appreciate your insights and can take a lot away from this episode. It has been a pleasure having you here today. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you to our audience for listening and stay tuned for more episodes to come.